Let, let, me, let me start with just praying and asking God's Holy Spirit for help right now. God, help. Lord, we are weak in ways that we're aware of, and we are weak in ways that we're not aware of. We need your help. God, where there's coldness and indifference to you, we need your help. We need your spirit to warm our hearts to you again. God, where there is unbelief that keeps us from hope, we need your help. We need your spirit to convince us that you are and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. Where there is fear of our circumstances, of people in our lives, of long-standing battles that don't go away, we need you to convince us that you are greater than these things and that you can sustain us. Lord, where there is the wrong kind of fear of you, where we are holding back our lives from you, keeping things that need to be surrendered to you, surrendered to you, where there is a sense that you are a hard taskmaster, where there is a sense that we should hold back parts of our life from your lordship. We need your help. We need you to speak to us that you can be trusted that you are gentle and you are humble of heart. Lord, where we are intimidated and crushed down by our long experience with our own unfaithfulness, where we are aware that we have let you down again and again and again to the point where we feel intimidated to hope that we can be different, that we feel bullied by our experience of our own hearts to believe that sin's power is too great in our hearts to find the freedom that you promise. We need to hear you say, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That by the spirit we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. That no temptation is greater than that you will provide a way out. You will. That your throne of grace and mercy is open to us for every need we have. So we need help. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody.
Last week we preached from 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 14, and in the middle of that exhortation was this command. For men and women, we heard the Lord say, act like men, be strong. It was an exhortation to courage for all of us. I, shot, I sought to show from that passage that it was an appeal, not to put our hope in ourselves and our courage, but to put our hope in God for courage because he is with us. And today I want to come back to this theme of biblical strength and what it means once again. Because I, I think it is crucial for us to really see what it is. Um, and, and, and really to see what it is not. And, and maybe one of the best ways for us to do that, to try to understand what biblical strength is, is to try to understand biblical strength in the context of this famous phrase we've heard so many times, and we've even heard this morning, when Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's what we're gonna look at today. What does it mean to say, when I am weak, then I am strong? And I wanna do this because I think this idea of strength and weakness, of being weak yet strong, is a powerful detergent. It scrubs away from our minds all kinds of wrong ideas in the world and in the church about what it means to be strong in the Lord. So that when you hear a passage like 1 Corinthians 16 and it says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, you're able to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. So I, I hope that this will serve you in your battle to follow God's command to be strong. Now, I want to look at this passage that surrounds that famous phrase, when I am weak, when I am strong. It's 1 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. But in order to understand what's going on there, we have to understand a little bit of the background, because I'm dropping you guys down into a passage we haven't been looking at. So I'm going to explain a little bit of the context of this passage. Paul is writing to this church, and he's trying to defend his reputation as an apostle, against attacks from these counterfeit religious leaders who want to defame him and demean him. These are counterfeit apostles, but they are impressive. They're smooth talking, they're worldly wise, they're proficient orators, and they uphold worldly esteem. People think highly of them, and they uphold worldly success and, and the professional polish that often impresses us, which isn't inherently wrong, but their heart motives around that polish are not good. So we might think of these guys as very professional, very competent, very impressive appearing people who had all the right connections. And don't think of three-piece suits if, if you automatically think of three-piece suits as disgusting or repulsive to you, <laughs> you know? Don't think, think of people with, with tattoos and really cool haircuts who have, you know, the right earrings and, and all the right clothes, you know, that you'd see on the street. But if that turns you off because you're more used to a, a white bread society, then think of three pre-suits with degrees. You know, whatever you would find uh, intuitively impressive, whether it's degrees from Harvard or the guy who just started his own taco truck and he's just a complete self-made man. You know, whatever it might be, it was grabbing these Corinthians on the outside, what they could see from the outside, including these guys had a Jewish ethnic identity that was really impressive <clears throat> to these Corinthians who were newly won to a Jewish Messiah. 
And essentially, these guys were trashing Paul because Paul, in comparison, appears to be very weak. He is timid in his speaking. He is impoverished very often. He is imprisoned very often. He is beaten very often. He is slandered very often. He is whipped around. And as he says in an earlier letter, he is, by all outside appearances, the scum of the earth. He was not worldly impressive at all. And I think any of us who saw Paul walk into a church service, you know, don't think of Together for the Gospel or one of these very good, potentially, like mega conferences with thousands of people and Paul walks up to the lectern and everyone's like impressed with him. I think he would be a guy with a lot of baggage behind him about what people were saying about him, why he'd been to jail so often. (laughs) Could you imagine going to a a preaching conference and hearing a guy who had been to jail 14 times in the last seven years for various things and some people were saying awful kinds of things about him. But this church was really in danger because they were believing the hype and they were starting to fall in love with what the world called success, what the world called strength. But they knew Paul. They knew he was a man of integrity. He had fought for them. He had... uh, preached to them for a long, he, he had lived off other people's dimes so he could preach to them for free and live among them for free. He did what he could to let them know that he loved them truly. But it wasn't uh, all working. And so he's making a passion appeal for them to not denigrate him, to not dismiss him. And listen, it's not because he needs their praise. It's not because he wants their praise. It's because he knows he really is sent by Jesus and they really do need to hold him up as a true apostle versus these false apostles. So for their sakes, he is defending himself from attacks that would trample, trample his reputation. But one of the areas he's under attack for in this, in this, which is really interesting for us, is this question of whether Paul is as supernaturally connected as he needs to be as these super apostles were. And this is really, really, really compelling. Listen to this. It appears that they're adding to their spiritual resumes, and this is where we can start to really disconnect from from what we would think of as a three-piece suit professional worship leader. Because what these people were adding to their resumes was their spiritual experience. They were saying, we have connections to the miraculous and the powerful that Paul doesn't have. We've had amazing visions and supernatural experiences that a lot of things Paul just can't bring to the table. And you know what? From outside appearances, it might have been easy for the Corinthians to believe that. Because if you know anything about Paul, you know that Paul was consumed not with talking about his spiritual revelations and his spiritual experiences and his amazing visions. He was not consumed with that stuff. He was consumed to, as he said in his own letter to this church earlier, to know nothing among them but Christ and him crucified. Paul was not consumed primarily with miraculous visions and incredible physical miracles and supernatural ecstasy. He is consumed with the miracle of the gospel, with truths that that may seem boring to those who are really titillated by exciting stories of visions. He was consumed with truths like justification by Christ's blood for our sins. It's can feel like boring church stuff, right? He was consumed with the resurrection that's still to come that we don't yet see while we wait in a world groaning with futility it can see. 
He was consumed with our new life in the Holy Spirit, not primarily defined by amazing revelations and amazing miracles, but primarily defined by the new spiritual life that lives in impossible ways for this world. Ways like love, ways like suffering, ways like holiness, ways like purity, ways like tenderness, ways like patience, working hard and being generous. Those were the things that most often consumed his heart and his teaching and he called his listeners to. But listen, listen, in this passage he stops for a moment with all this talk of spiritual visions and he says, okay, okay, you wanna talk about spiritual supernatural visions? I'll tell you about a vision that I had that can compete with any of these guys' visions. I'll tell you about a revelation I had. I'll call your bluff that'll blow you out of the water if you really knew it. And then I'll tell you what God did next to help you understand what he's really interested in. And as Paul does this, we'll be asked to consider what's real strength in the eyes of God. Now, at the outset, I want to alert you. Paul will, will talk about this vision in the third person at the beginning as if another man has it. And he's doing that because he feels awkward about boasting. He wants to let them know he's not really comfortable boasting in what he's experienced at all that, like this. So let's go to the text and listen as Paul tells the Corinthians about perhaps the most incredible spiritual experience, the most incredible spiritual vision or revelation any Christian has ever had in history. Starting in verse two, I know a man, and Paul's talking of himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul, had the most incredible supernatural experience we could possibly imagine. He was literally taken to heaven. He calls it the third heaven. And probably in, in Jewish terminology, that refers to the heaven, heaven we think of when we think of heaven. The first heaven for many was the sky, the clouds, the air. The second heaven was the stars and the planets. And the third heaven was heaven, heaven, the real heaven. The realm of undiluted unhidden God and Paul was so utterly consumed with the glories of this vision and this supernatural experience which was real and incredibly powerful that he says I can't even tell you about it like I can't explain anything I saw to you in fact I'm not even I don't think I'm even allowed to like it would be trying to explain a superconductor to a dog In any case, Paul literally went to heaven. <clears throat> he says in verse five, on behalf of this man I will boast, but I am, on my own behalf I will not boast. Right, he's being, he's being uh, uh, shrewd here. 
He's being ironic. Except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. What Paul's saying is, I could boast about this all day long because it really happened. But I don't want you to put your hope in me for this revelation or experience I had at all. I want you to put your hope in my message about Jesus. And I want you to put your hope in that message about Jesus coming from a man who really has a heart of love and really has a changed life. So he says, I, I won't boast except I will boast in what I say and what, what you hear from me about Jesus and what you see in me, a good life lived, not a counterfeit life. In verse seven, let's go back to the text. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. This is Paul. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. After the vision, something, after the vision that Paul has, something is going to happen to him that you wouldn't have expected, right? Paul's response to the vision is going to go wrong. He is not ready to see what he saw without it damaging him morally. That's what he's saying here. Remember, he's not the fully resurrected Paul. He's not completely free from indwelling sin. Like you and I, he has indwelling sin opposing his new man in him that he's carrying around with him until he dies and until he rises new in Christ. So this is a great blessing, this vision, right? But, but mixed with the sin still in his body and his mind, God knows it will produce the unattended consequence of arrogance in Paul, of pride in Paul, of conceit in Paul. This gift of supernatural revelation will wreck Paul because of sin in Paul. That's what he's saying here. And so Paul receives what we wouldn't expect him to receive, a harassing messenger from Satan to keep him humble and true to God. Paul says to God, take this away, this is awful. Then he says it again, God, take this away, this stinks. Then he says it again, ouch, God, ouch, get this off of me. And God says, no, you need this for your humbling. You need this. And Paul, my grace will be with you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. God's power, his sustaining strength will show up well in Paul's weakened state Think of Gideon's army. Gideon wanted to bring 22,000 men against a massive army on the seashore. Gideon says it was like stars in the sky. So many Amalekites and Midianites, whoever it was, ready to take on the Israelites. So Gideon wants to put an army of 22,000 men. God says, tell them to go home. I want 300 guys. Because if you go down there with your 22,000 men and wipe out that army, everyone's, you're all gonna think it was you. So I need 300 guys, that's what I need, against tens of thousands, probably. God says, Paul, I, I want you 
you're going to have to be harassed right now and tormented right now. But my grace is going to show up as you keep going and keep following me through that pain. And this leads to our famous phrase this morning. Therefore, I will boast more all the gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I want to draw from this passage and others related to weaknesses and strengths, truths that that hopefully will help us understand when I am weak, when I'm strong. So I'm gonna go through a bunch of bullet points about what we can see about weaknesses and strengths from this passage and others like it. And then we'll come back to the end and see if we can get a better understanding of what does it mean for us to say when I'm weak, then I'm strong in the right way. First point I wanna make is that weaknesses are any differences, difficulties outside of us. Weaknesses are any difficulties outside of us or vulnerabilities inside of us that expose our personal limitations and bring suffering. Weaknesses are any difficulties outside of us, vulnerabilities inside of us that expose personal personal limitations and bring suffering. Verse 10, Paul writes of boasting in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. But he starts with weakness. So let's start with that word weakness, which really covers everything. But that word he starts with weakness, it has a specific definition that I think is really important here. It's a very broad word. And in Greek classical literature, it, it means almost anything that's powerlessness, but particularly it can mean physical illness and physical disability. It's used in scripture to refer to the woman with 12 years of bleeding. This is, the Greek word is she had a weakness, but it's defined there as sickness because we know what kind of weakness it was. And it's used to describe the sick that were brought to Jesus in Mark 6, Mark 10, and Luke 4. They're all described as sick, but the Greek word there is weakness. So this is really important for us, church. Contrary to some erroneous biblical, well, supposedly biblical teaching that's out there, that's always been out there, it's particularly out there right now, the Bible makes room for true Christians to be seriously ill and not simply because of their lack of faith or because of sin in their lives. Your lack of faith and sin in your life can relate to your sickness, you may not be believing God for what you need to believe him for. You may, you may be sinning in such a way that God's bringing a sickness into your life to discipline you. But that does not mean that that is what is going on with you. You can have cancer and not be lacking in faith for God's healing. You can die of diabetes and not be being punished by God for a sin you haven't repented of. As if it's just part of the fallen world, if you do a quick survey with me across the epistles after, the, after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes down and is available to all of us, Paul tells us that Trophimus was too sick to journey with him in 1 Timothy 4.20, with no comment about Trophimus' weak faith or his sin. Timothy's illnesses were so frequent that Paul had suggested continual wine for medicinal help in 1 Timothy 5.23, without reference to Timothy's weak faith or his sin. Epaphroditus got so sick he nearly dies in Philippians 2.30, there had to have been a period between when Epaphroditus showing symptoms and the point when he almost died that Paul could have said, be gone sickness, and it would have just been gone if that was the will of God in that situation. In Galatians 4.12-14, Paul is sick enough to have to stay with strangers in Galatia. They had to care for him in his sickness. And he says, I could have been a burden to you in my infirmed sick condition. But he says, instead, you took me in as if I was Christ himself. He preached the gospel and he started that church that he's writing to in Galatia through that illness. 
So weaknesses here can include physical sicknesses like cancer, disabilities like autism, mental illnesses like depression, bipolar disorder, wheelchairs, needles for insulin, catheters for children who can't move their arms and legs. And Paul can, and, and God can cure those things in a second. And God can let those things continue for years to prove his power in the midst of them. That's the biggest definition of weakness. Now we're going to go bullet point down into these other categories, insults. Paul lists insults as other kinds of weaknesses. Jesus was spat on and ridiculed on his way to the cross and on the cross. Those are insults. You might be mocked for reading your Bible at a lunch break. You will very likely, if you keep holding on to Jesus Christ for the next few decades, be thought of as a bigot and as an idiot for believing the Bible that you read on your lunch break, maybe. Hardships. Hardships are places where you just feel life falls on you. Not what you plan, not what you'd hope for. Your car gets stolen, then a month later you total it hitting a deer. <laughs> Ryan Selesky, raise your hand. But you're trapped in something. A home full of mold. I bought this home for $300,000 and now it's coated in mold. <laughs> That's a hardship. A job, that didn't happen to us by the way, but I hope, but um, a job lost through no fault of your own. persecutions, serious mistreatment because of Jesus. For Paul, it's prison and beatings. For the Chinese a few months ago, it's imprisonment and having their churches burned down. And for us soon, it might be losing businesses or being rejected from jobs year after year because we don't feel like we can decorate a wedding cake for a homosexual couple. Calamities. Calamities are catastrophic hardships, devastating losses that crush you, overwhelm you. And I think the accent here is on the overwhelming effect of the difficulty. We might say the death of a spouse is a calamity. We might say the drug addiction of a child is a calamity. We might say that adultery uh, committed against us has been a calamity in our life. So these are weaknesses. And, and it's just everything that feels like it's just part of this futile world and broken world. It's a lot more than what I just mentioned, but th that you kind of get the point of it. Weaknesses in the New Testament, this is my second point, are, are not necessarily sins. They're, they're, in fact, I would say go, they're, they're almost never sins, but they can be related to them. I say almost never because Jesus used a metaphor. He says it's not the, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, and he's referring to sins there. But he's using it metaphorically. So weaknesses, he's not saying they're really sick. Sicknesses are really weaknesses. But in the New Testament, when Paul's talking about I will boast in my weakness, he's not saying I will boast in my sin. So notice here, in fact, in this passage, what Paul does not say is his weakness, right? He, he, he does not say I, I was going to be conceited. That was my weakness. No, he says he received a weakness to protect him from being conceited. But he doesn't call his conceit or his pride weakness. Sometimes we do. We call our, our weaknesses or our brokenness, we, we, we're referring to our sin. We can say that. And that might be okay as long as you're careful not to translate that into it's not really my fault, but the fault of nature or the fault of circumstance. The thorn in flesh in, in Paul's side, the messenger from Satan, wasn't Paul's fault. It wasn't his sin. It was, it was sent to protect him from sin. So we need to be careful when we're saying our, our, we're, we live in a, you know, this is my brokenness, this is my weakness, that we're not essentially absolving or communicating to other people that sin is just something that happens to us. But this is tricky. We gotta be careful too. Because sin involves more than our choice. And we need to be careful. Our, our bodies are fallen. Our DNA is fallen. 
It rebels against what it was supposed to be. Our upbringing is a fallen upbringing. Our, our hardships make it, they all, these things all make it easier or harder to sin. We are more vulnerable to temptation because of how we've been brought up or less vulnerable because of how our parents treated us. Certainly physically, we can also become enslaved physiologically to sins that we didn't start out enslaved to. And so what's initially our culpability and our choice becomes more and more an enslavement that we're imprisoned to. Now, and certainly people who go through horrible abuse, uh, this is stuff I've talked about with, with like Deb and other people, not that she was horribly abused. Um, she's helped me understand, you know, considering these things more carefully because of her, her uh, good work in counseling. But people who go through horrible abuse, uh, and, and I've, I've seen this before in life, but they often become horrible abusers, don't they? And, and I think so we need to be careful not to ignore the real connections, the shaping influences of our upbringing, of our DNA, especially when those being careful about that helps us to have sympathy and more humility and more wisdom to care for people who are both sinners but also sufferers themselves. But, but it does need to be said, the New Testament never ultimately blames our sin on what happens to us. The New Testament never ultimately blames our sin on what happens to us but on what happens in us. What happens in our hearts as we desire and we choose to stop suffering or enduring for God against whatever the temptation is and grab the temptation and run with it. But this is, this is good news. And I found this in my own life growing up in you know, a home with alcoholism in it. You know? um, I, th- the freeing news is that if, if my rage issues, um, which I hope I, I'm not... <laughs> I hope I'm not bound up in rage issues now, but, but, but hypothetically, if my rage issues are not ultimately caused by what my parents did to me, but if they're instead rooted in me, seeing myself as the most important thing in the universe, when I don't get what I want, if it's really rooted in my sin attitude, then because Jesus died for that sinful attitude, he has purchased my freedom from that sinful attitude. And when I turn to him for help to be free from that sin, Jesus doesn't need to go ask my parents to help me out of that. He doesn't need to work with them on, will they forgive me and will I forgive them and all that. Now that can be very helpful and really important. But Jesus is not, he is not chained to what happened to me from other people. So for, for many years, I was in counseling after college, and I was in this ACU, Adult Children of Alcoholics, count, and, and over time, I just kept hearing about how what I was was because of what my parents did to me over and over again. I love my parents. My parents made many mistakes, but they were amazing parents. But I kept hearing this. You are a product of your parents' sins. And I felt very trapped because I couldn't undo that. But I wasn't a product of their sins. And when I see Jesus face to face and however many years it is or days it is before I stand for him, he's not going to ask me to give an account for my parents' sins. He's not going to, I don't think he's going to ask me about their sins at all. He's going to ask me about mine. And, and so it was just freeing to see that I could go to him with my heart and he could heal my heart regardless of whether they wanted to cooperate or get in a time machine and undo what they did or not. That's the power of the gospel. But here's another critically important definition of weakness in the Bible related to sin. This is critically important. Weaknesses include our vulnerability in Scripture to temptation. Weaknesses include our vulnerability to temptation to sin. Hebrews tells us, tells us of Jesus as the one who sympathizes with our what? With our weaknesses. He's not talking about our autism or the flu. 
He's not talking about the car accident or the weird temperament we have that makes people think they're mad at us because we never talk. <laughs> he, he, he's talking about our sin, our vulnerability to it. Sorry, he's not talking about, our, he's talking about our vulnerability to temptation to sin. Jesus shared this weakness. He was, Hebrews tells us, highly read it today, tempted in every way as we are, yet he never sinned. And that's exactly why he's able to help us not sin. Or he's able to help us when we do sin with his blood sacrificed for us. So when we're tempted severely, we can look to the one who was tempted severely. And we can know that he felt that great battle that we feel. And we can trust his attitude towards us will be compassion and empathy and not hardness. You weenie, just resist and get up. You're f- just stop sinning. He's not like that. He has sympathy. That means from the bowels. That means from the depths of his heart, he feels for all our vulner- vulnerability to our temptation. Sorry if bowels is a wor- weird word. It, it just is trying to communicate from the depths of who he is. He has compassion for you in your battle with sin. That's incredible truth. And I don't often consider that very well. I don't, I don't see that of Jesus very well, but it's so crucial for me too that out of his storehouses of compassion for me and you in our vulnerability to sin, he has great mercy for us when we fail and he has great power to sustain us next point weaknesses are under God's sovereignty regardless of wherever else they come from weaknesses are under God's sovereignty regardless of wherever else they come from Paul said a thorn in a flesh was given to him God's grace in this weakness we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was it might point to a physical ailment because of the word weakness and because of the word flesh but nobody knows for sure He could be talking about different aspects of the flesh. And you know what? It's perfect that no one knows. That's on purpose. Because if this thorn was was a specific weakness, you would be more inclined to say, oh, I can't relate to that. But Paul left it opaque. He left it general. So that all of us who go through weaknesses could say, oh, I can relate. I can relate to feeling harassed. I can relate to feeling tormented by stuff inside me, outside me. But we are told where it came from. And this is really strange. It came from Satan. Or an angel of Satan. The the actual Greek word is what we often use for angel. So it might be, it's probably a demon. It came from a demon from Satan to torment Paul. And listen, right? This must mean that Paul needs to take authority over it and cast it away in the name of Jesus, right? Because it's a demon from Satan. Away from me. I take authority of you. Paul had no such impulse. We need to think about that. He knew who held Satan's leash and he went straight to Jesus who has authority to command Satan to do whatever he wants. He went straight to the Jesus who can stop Satan from doing whatever he doesn't want. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So Paul goes to the authority and he says, hey, authority guy who has all authority over Satan and every sickness and every disease, take this away, please. (laughs) 
Listen, if you feel faith to cast out demons and take authority over them in Jesus' name, I am not here to argue with you. That may be a gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given you that I don't have either faith for or I don't see it right now. So I would, I, seriously, like I would not, if someone said that, I, I believe God's given me a gift to exercise or deliver people from demonic influence. I, I would not argue with you about that. But when I look at scriptures, I feel on firmer ground going to the authority himself and saying, God, and I do this, if, if this demon or what Satan's doing isn't in your authority to do it, then please take it away. Take it away. And I don't have a problem going to whatever demonic authority and doing what Jude did in Jude 1 when he argues with Satan over the body of Moses. He knows that Satan's not in the right. So what does he say? What does Michael the archangel say? He says, the Lord rebukes you. So I, I very often feel fine to say to anybody who's in a situation where they might feel like they're being demonically influenced, I will say, Lord, in, I, I ask you to take this satanic infirmity, infirmity away, just like Paul does here. And I feel great saying, and if there's any demonic work here going on that's not authorized by God, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. The Lord rebukes you. The Lord rebukes you. Because here's the thing. <laughs> Satan is on God's leash. And there are times, like in Paul's lives, where God allows Satan to do stuff. And you can command away all you want in the name of Jesus and your authority. And nothing's gonna happen if God is allowing what Satan's doing to do for the good, ultimately, of the person. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's my take, little little excursus on deliverance ministry stuff. And, and again, if, if you feel like you know other things or you want to practice other things, I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm looking at what Paul did. I'm looking at what Mike, uh, the, the archangel Michael did, and I'm kind of trying to take my cues from them. <laughs> so um, that does sound kind of arrogant, but, but I, <laughs> I don't know where else to go, you know, because I've, I've been thinking about this and dealing with this for a long time. You know, it's d- deliverance and demonic possessions and the authority of the believer. And I just think it's, this is, if the apostle went to God and said, take Satan away, I can do that. If the archangel Michael went to Satan and said, if you're not authorized here, the Lord rebukes you, I can do that. Other things, I don't know what I can do. So I'm gonna move on now. It is good and right to ask God to deliver us from weaknesses. It is good and right. Notice that Paul says he was content in his weaknesses, but notice when he says it. He says it after he asked three times for God to take it away. Whatever the harassment that God allowed from Satan, Paul did not like it. Ouch, it was painful, and he was right to ask God to take it away. And so should we. We should ask God to take out hardships, any satanic influence. We should ask him to take away our diseases and the things we don't like about this fallen world that we're involved in. And a a lot of times, God will say, okay, I will. Taste my goodness the way you want to taste it right now. He is a God who, who renews our strength with good things and satisfies our hearts with delights from his hand. So we should not feel bad about asking God to take stuff away. Paul was not a sadomasochist. We don't impress God when we try to suffer without groaning or without pleading. Jesus himself said, this is, I just think this is, you know, Greatest lost verses. You know, if I had like 10 verses that I'm just like, gotta remember this verse. <laughs> he said this, when they persecute you in one city, 
Stand firm until the end. He says, when they persecute you in one city, flee. Flee to the next. Paul said, if you're a slave and you can be free, for the love, be free. There is nothing inherently good about suffering for suffering's sake, and there's nothing inherently wrong, and there's everything reasonable about seeking to be free from suffering. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said this rightly. <laughs> Not, you know what, it's just, ah, uh, my brain. I, it's like, because a Puritan said it in funky language, you guys are gonna feel like it's more credible. But, but he did say this. He said, not God, he said that contentment in God, contentment in God is not opposed to all lawful seeking for help in different or difficult circumstances, nor endeavoring to be delivered out of present afflictions by the use of lawful means. God's not against it. It means if you have cancer, pray for miraculous healing. Ask to be anointed and go to your oncologist and maybe explore radical diets in Cancun like my father-in-law did. He chased after healing. We just, he just didn't want to, we didn't want him to be consumed as if that was where his salvation was. Like th that's all of our hopes, right? Is that we will, we will be able to, to seek healing without selling our souls to it. And, and I'm not saying that Mark did or not. I, I, I just, I just felt that, that well, I'll, I'll just put that aside for a second. It, if you've been diagnosed with severe depression, you should seek help from a competent psychiatrist about potential medication options and not necessarily feel guilty about that. You should pray for God to heal you. You should ask for his miraculous power to take that away. You should believe that God can do that. If you have a terrible job where you are mistreated and underutilized month after month, you should ask God for a better job and you're not sinning to look for a better job that's ethical. But, next bullet point, weaknesses protect us from pride and cause us to hope in God. And this means that very often we can try all we want and pray all we want and seek all the deliverance ministries we want and, and and like Paul, God will not, not yet take our weaknesses away. Whether it's a bad job or a straying family member or diabetes or a critical spouse or an insulting boss or continually depleted bank account, God will often leave us in a place of weakness. Why? Why does he do this? Why does God sometimes leave his people with calamities while others he rescues immediately at the first asking? Why did my father-in-law Mark die of cancer believing God like, you know, he, he followed the Bethel church guys and I, he had guys commanding the evil spirit of cancer out of him in Jesus' name. He believed all that stuff. He forgave people who sinned against him. He asked forgiveness for those he sinned against. He took communion like week after week after week, if not day after day after day. He did everything. He went to a service where they said, we're not even gonna ask God to heal you. We're gonna believe him too. We're not even gonna say if you're willing. We're just gonna say God does. All. And it was like, there's no guy I never saw who had stronger faith that God could and would do this. And he died of cancer. My brother got malaria. Terrible disease, if left untreated. Horrible. I prayed for him over the phone. He had his malaria tests in front of him. He went to the doctor at a better hospital, infectious disease. The malaria was gone the next time he went to be tested, within hours after that prayer. And the doctor said, you had malaria, dude. Like, you had malaria. You went to the right place. Your blood had this pathogen. 
it is gone. We do not understand what happened to you or who you are. They, they literally said to him, dude, they said the word they used was, you are an enigma. We do not understand. I understood. I had faith that God was gonna heal him of malaria. Or at least that day, sometimes I have faith that God will heal. That day I had faith that God could and that God wanted us to believe that he could. But why? Why did Mark die and why did my brother get cured of malaria? Let's go back to the purpose of Paul's weakness. He said it was to keep me from being conceited. God was protecting Paul from an exaggerated sense of self-regard, self-reliance, self-importance. See, Paul's weakness, this thorn in the side, was a gift to keep him in God's love. It would have been a disaster to his heart and a disaster to the work God wanted him to do to have this vision he had without the thorn to keep him from putting his hope in himself because of the vision. Can you imagine what an experience that must have been? For Paul the apostle, so committed to Christ, to have a spiritual experience so powerful that it would have wrecked his ministry with pride. I mean, it must have been incredible. But listen, our relationship with God cannot live on a lie. And self-sufficiency is the biggest lie there is when you're dealing with God. Our relationship with God cannot flourish on a lie and self-sufficiency is the biggest lie there is when you're dealing with God. He is the only almighty eternal God and he will always be from now through eternity the only eternal almighty God. He is the only source. We will always only be receivers of him and his power. And so Paul needed to be protected from pride and conceit but listen, it was much more about, it was much more than simply about protecting Paul from sin. It was to protect Paul for God. It was so that Paul could experience God. God said that his grace and power will be sufficient for Paul, not just that you need to not be proud. He said, no, I'll give you grace. I'll give you sufficiency. The roadblock of pride that this weakness would protect Paul from, would be met by a new highway of God's power that would, that would move Paul's hope away from himself and put it on God's sufficiency and God's grace. And so just like for Paul and just like for me and just like for you, God allows weaknesses into our lives to teach us to turn from self-reliance and pride and put our reliance and hope on him we see this at work in another famous passage on weakness from Paul. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's full of so much maturing meat if we get this. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope. Oh, man, let us not just breeze by these words. There is the great apostle Paul, afflicted, utterly burdened, beyond his strength, despairing of life, feeling the sentence of death. 
Why did all that happen? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. That's not just a quick, happy little lesson. Listen, Paul had something in him that made him want to rely on himself. Something in him that made him want to be the source. It made him want to be the strong one, the sufficient one. We needed this, he's saying. I needed this to make me rely not on myself, but on God. And This trial was a detergent to wash self-reliance off of him. And so he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. So for you and for I, wherever there is self-sufficiency, wherever there is pride, wherever it is ultimately in your heart, it's going to be up to your wisdom or your talent or your intelligence or your humor or your good looks or your bank account or your ingenuity or your smarts or your diplomas or your willfulness or your appraisal of the situation or your hard work or your character or your charisma or your strength. Wherever you are, deep down in the innermost place where you may not even be aware, wherever you have set your hope on yourself, so there God will be in mercy and love at work to destroy that idol. That his weakness might free you to say in freedom and in joy, that was to make me not rely on myself, but on God, on him we have set our hope. And isn't this truly what we want? Isn't it what we need? Oh, there is nothing better or more satisfying than being able to say, oh, my hope is on God. Psalm 32 says, The steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in him. When we're looking to God in trust, when our hearts have been washed clean of self-reliance, either in anxiety or in pride, we are positioned to receive from him what he longs to give us, sustaining grace for all the situation we're in. And Paul knew that was worth it. Once he heard from God that God's grace would be enough for him, that Christ's power would be at work in him, that was enough for him to say, I'll be content with this then. He went from a painful grimace to a glad smile. I really do believe that he wasn't free of suffering, but he had something more. He he knew that this suffering, any weakness that would allow him to experience Christ really and bring glory to Christ really in his own heart, it was worth the price. So weaknesses lead us, another point, weaknesses lead us to experience God and glory in his strength. Weaknesses lead us to experience God and glory in his strength. Paul says, after consulting with the Lord and the Lord telling him, I'm not taking this away, Paul, I'll be with you, I'll be enough for you, he then says this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me For the sake of Christ then, for the sake of Christ, to please him, to enjoy him, to delight in him, to glory in him, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul wants nothing more than to experience Christ and his saving power at work in him. Nothing matters more to him than being able to have a ringside seat at the glory of Jesus and all of who he is. 
he just wants to know that and experience that. And he, he feels like everything else is way, way, way back in second, third, fourth, and 573rd place. In Philippians, he talks about his sufferings in another way. He says this, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I might know him and the power of his erection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a lot in this verse that I can't unpack, but what Paul is saying here, there's nothing I want more than to know and experience Jesus and his life and his power and his goodness. And he knew this hard, hard truth. He knew this. He knew that on this side of heaven, suffering and weakness are essential to experiencing Jesus. If he wanted to experience Jesus, and he wanted to enjoy and see his glory and his power, he was going to have suffering. He was going to have to have weaknesses. This is what he means in 2 Corinthians 4.11. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always consigned to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. What is he talking about there? He's talking about weaknesses, hardships, calamities, persecutions. Paul was in trial after trial after trial. He was put in weak position after weak position. He was put through beating after beating, hardship after hardship, and they all became occasions for him to experience Christ's life and Christ's power. Whether it was miraculous deliverance in the moment, or months and months of jail, his intimacy and compassion pouring in Paul. In all he faced, he was able to say, not I, but the grace of God in me. And those around him would wonder, how did this terrorist who hated Christians and tried to kill them become someone who could go through so much suffering for Jesus? They only had one answer. God is real. I mean, there were other answers they could go to, sure, but... But many, and certainly in the church, said, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. And Paul himself was able to see and experience Christ and his power. This was worth the weakness. Now sometimes this is important. We're aware of experiencing God in his power and his grace more after the weakness ends. And here's what I mean. I think that Paul's experience with the affliction in Asia when he said that he was in despair of life and he felt the senses of death and he was burdened beyond he could bear, I don't think in the middle of that he was saying, I will trust the Lord, my God. I think he was saying, ah. And I don't know what it was. And it could have been days, it could have been weeks, it could have been months. I don't know what it was. But I think after the deliverance, he saw God sustained me and delivered me. And he blew off and washed off some self-reliance. I thought I knew how to handle that, how to get myself out of it, but I didn't. I think God will allow us to be absolutely crushed at times. And we will just live in pain, 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 and suffering and suffering. But other times, this deeper knowing of God and experiencing God, it happens at the same time. 
And I think that's more Paul in our story today. He, he is tormented. He says, please end this. And God says, no. At the same time you're gonna be hassled and harassed, I will be with you, and that will be enough. And it made all the difference for Paul to experience the God of grace and power in the midst of the suffering was far worth the difficulty. I hate suffering. I hate it. I hate it. Suffering is painful, right? Like, pain. I just, I hate pain. Why do I hate pain? Because it's pain. Like, what weirdo likes pain? I hate it. <sighs> Years ago, I went through a trial I hope I never have to go through again. Ugh, just thinking about it, I'm just like, please, God, no. I think it was the greatest trial I've ever had in ministry. Like, I've had other trials and relationships and emotional issues with my own crazy brain. But th this was the greatest trial I've ever had in ministry. And I felt so sorely afflicted. I felt so beaten down for a long period. And I also felt shame. Like, I, I couldn't see perfectly what was my fault and what was other people's fault. And I did my best to, to, to take account for myself as much as I could, but it didn't erase the pain. Many prayers, many counselors, many meetings, but painful thing followed painful thing followed painful thing. Betrayal, uh, just weirdness. It was just cr crazy. And, and the things I tried to do to resolve it for a long period of time, it seemed like they actually made it worse. Like it was just like, God, where are you? Like, what should I do? Help. It was just, and one day after many months, might have been like a year or more in, I, I was confronted powerfully by this truth in Philippians. Where Paul writes the Philippians, he says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer. I didn't, I didn't sign up for that second one. <laughs> like, I, I like, believing and coming to believe my sins were covered but thank you okay I'll take the suffering too I mean Paul's saying this is a gift to you not only to believe in Jesus but to suffer for his sake I think that can mean for his sake via persecution or for his sake what God wants to do in you through suffering But I'd heard that verse before for a long time. I'd heard about how suffering is part of the Christian life for a long time. I've heard about that. But in that moment, on that day, hearing from my friend Mike Umlet and reading Richard Gaffin and hearing from another guy, old mentor guy, I realized in the most powerful way that I, in the whole time I'd experienced that long trial, and really in the most powerful way in my whole life, I realized God was saying this to me. Like it's, it's, you know how people can give you verses and they can tell you truth, but there are times where God just comes near and he says, I'm, I'm saying this to you right now. Like you can't, you can't get in his way. He's just saying, I'm going to now tell you and convict you that this is true in a way you've never seen before. And I had that experience. I had an experience. He was talking to me and I was, that what I was going through was something he was calling me to go through. And he was really making me see that suffering is just part of being a Christian. And this trial was not mainly about shame or mistakes I had made, though I wasn't perfect, but it, it really wasn't an issue of blame on me. It, I was going to go through it in order to be made more like Christ. I was going to go through it in order to know Jesus better. I was going to go through it in order to experience his character and his power in my life more. I was going to have to go through it. 
It's like that book about chasing that bear. My kids love that book. Oh no, it's a storm, a really bad storm. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. Some of you guys have read that. That's so much of life, right? Jesus is saying, this is part of being my disciple. You have to go through these things. And then something else happened that I will never forget. It got much better. Because in that moment that I was hearing God say, you have to go through this, I remembered the verse in John where it says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And that was one of the most devastatingly wonderful things I could go through. Through all that muckety-muck, he knows me. I know him. He is with me. He is here in this trial. I can't do the math on all of it. It doesn't matter. He's here. He's with me. Bigger than any mistakes I've made. Bigger than any suffering I've experienced. And it made it all worth it. It really did. I would never want that trial again. But I wouldn't trade it if it meant I lose that day of hearing him whisper to me, you're my sheep. I know you. You're with me. The knowledge that he was with me, teaching me, sustaining me, was using all this weakness to cause me to experience him and hear his tender voice. It made me content that day. Oh, way more than content. It, at least that day it did. Because <laughs> I have to go back to that day and remember. I have to go back to him again and again and again to refresh my hope. Because I'm just a man. I'm weak. And I'm given to forget him. I mean, God is the only one, right, who's strong. When we say, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, we're not saying we're strong in ourselves. We're saying we're strong because he's with us. Because we're relying on him. Because he's committed to us. We're saying all this weakness but we get him. We get to know him. We get to rest in him. We get to grow in him and hope in him who alone is worthy of our hope, who for eternity is going to be the only guy with anything to offer. <laughs> and so we better know him. And when we do that, when we rely on him, when we're weak, we're strong. I tried to think of a way to summarize in a little paragraph what's it mean to say when I'm weak then I'm strong. And this helps you. You can take it home. I'll send it to you. If it doesn't help you, take a little break from the sermon <laughs> right now. But here's kind of what I came up with. When my understanding of my utter lack of self-sufficiency compels me not to hope in myself, not to hope in my abilities or my character, or my circumstances, but compels me to rather instead hope in Jesus' ability and Jesus' character and Jesus' sovereignty all over my circumstances, then I find that I'm in the strongest position possible, relying on God, 
position to experience his almighty strength, which he exerts for the benefit of those who trust in him. That's a lot. And it's 12.06, so I'm not gonna unpack that. But as we close right now, I just wanna take some time to bring to the Lord, for you to bring to the Lord your weaknesses. Spend some time in prayer to ask him to either take them away or sustain you in them. But ask him that, that regardless of what he does in your weaknesses and his wisdom, to please let you experience him more deeply through them. And I put it up there in a little prayer. I think we have it, right? It says prayer. God, whether you take my weaknesses. You can, you can pray this if it helps you. If it doesn't, it's okay. Whether you take my weaknesses away or you allow them to continue, please make them a means of me knowing you, of hoping in you, of being strong in your strength so that you are glorified in me and I'm satisfied by you. Please, Lord, make this the, my, my deepest desire and my weaknesses. And you can pray that along with God, take it away. Because <laughs> he honors that. And he, he answers that prayer sometimes more than we might anticipate. 